the following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. This episode of Geeks and Beats is brought to you by the awesome headphone maker, Odyssey. I have a pair. I love them. <laughs> All right, stand by. Here we go. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. The future of virtual reality is audio. We'll introduce you to Jonathan Roden, the CEO of Overworld XR. Star Trek Picard has gone to where no Starship captain has gone before, really, and we're not kidding about that. <laughs> and we'll talk about my 20-year-old nightmare come true. Half-Life Alex is here. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. How are you doing, by the way? Well, I am almost all the way through Tiger King. If you haven't started watching Tiger King, you really need to. It's not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. There are more captive tigers in the U.S. than there are in the wild throughout the world. Animal people are nuts, man. They're all crazy. I'm sure y'all got a story to tell. This is the thing that's breaking the Internet right now. This is why we've had to throttle back bandwidth in Canada. Because so many people are watching this thing. I can't even begin to describe it other than the fact that it involves a guy, 227 tigers, his two husbands, uh, a rival guy who has a whole bunch of big cats, uh, a woman who wants to free all the big cats but is keeping her big cats to herself, murder, arson, and... Um lesbianism and it's a reality show it's an actual guy who ran for president and ran for the governorship of uh, of oklahoma it is so bizarre i read this earlier today that cardi b is trying to free the tiger king from his cage yeah so of course thanks a lot cardi b spoiler alert i was only on episode one. Oh yeah okay joe's in jail for 79 years uh, he says he was framed. Um, be, <laughs> he apparently conspiracy to commit murder. He wanted to hire a hitman to uh, get rid of this 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 woman for trying to shut down his zoo. And it's I guess, oh god, I'm gonna have to watch the show uh, all the way through a second time, the series all the way through a second time just to pick up on all the subtleties. I don't know if I can watch it, and. It's largely because of the animal abuse component to it. You know, here he is. He's screaming that, you know, these are animal rights crazies. Um, but, dude, you are literally 
raising tiger pups for the purposes of making money off them in yes what did she say in the first episode it was something like um these are creatures that are accustomed to what was it 400 square miles or something like that so yeah so the the, there's a side of me that, that gets really upset about the the animal abuse component to it but at the same time, if I rail too hard about it, somebody will go on Twitter and find a photo of Eric Regulie, formerly of the Globe and Mail, and me. He's holding a tiger cub, and I'm grinning like an idiot while I pet it. <laughs> because a guy who worked at the TV station I was at um, decided to bring in the buddy from the Bowmanville Zoo. You remember this guy, the guy who on live TV admonished an animal? And that was what shut down his roadside zoo. Oh, I know it's been shut down, but I didn't realize it was as a result of, of, uh, of that incident. By the way, so you're only on the first episode. So you haven't got to the second episode where um, a zoo employee has her arm torn off. No, but wifey spotted, sorry, my wife spotted this. Um, she said, that woman is missing most of her left arm. <laughs> yes, she is. Why is that? Because she reached yeah. into the cage to pet a kitty. Uh, I can't, I can't stop. It's like a dumpster fire car crash. I can't stop it. it it's, it's, I'm actually yelling at the TV going, come on, this can't be true. Or you gotta be kidding. Oh, the, the one that got me. The zig when I expected the zag was I found out that this uber redneck was gay. Yeah, that <laughs> did not see that coming. No. And how all. many husbands did he have at one? How many husbands did he have? I don't know. You tell me. Okay, well, he, he usually had two. One, well, I won't tell you what happened to one of them, but then he found another one online. And then, oh, anyway, it's just, again, the internet is breaking down. Because so many people are streaming Tiger King. And once you start, you'll understand why. You will not be able to take your eyes away from this. Because you cannot believe these are sentient human beings who theoretically have the same rights as every other homo (laughs) sapien. It's like, wow. Uh, Just wow. Yeah, it certainly opened my eyes up to the... um, to the cornucopia of individuals that exist all throughout the United States. Yeah. Now I should point out that a bunch of them do live in Florida, which again, you know, if you, if you live in Florida, you're probably just going, yeah. But uh, Joe exotic, the, the, the main guy here, the tiger King, he's from Oklahoma. Oh man. So while you were hooked on that, I was hooked on something completely different. I had told you that I was looking forward to just one thing of being under quarantine, and that's Half-Life Alex. Right. Well, we've got to get you out of here and up to the roof. I'm working on it. Into figuring this out. So here here you are as the female lead, the 19-year-old Alex, whose father is helping save the world from these aliens who have come down and enslaved humanity. There I've got the multi-tool, and it, there, there's sort of um, like puzzles within the game that, that you play. So here what I'm doing here is trying to hack into this security system by connecting all of the dots. And then once you get through, you move into the world's where the aliens have brought with them these little crab-like creatures that have turned humanity into zombies when they land on your head. I hate when that happens.
Ooh, that's that's um, that's graphic. Yeah. Oh, well. it's, it, it's it can be really quite graphic. Oh, um, and there's a guy down there about to get all blowed up real good. Okay. The sound around this game is really quite remarkable, and I think that really plays a big role in why it's so immersive. This is this game, Half-Life Alex. if you're not the geek that I am, um, the premise behind it is that aliens have come down, they've basically taken over, and they've let these little crap-like creatures go running through, and they turn humanity into zombies. They've actually ah! gotten some of the humans to participate um, in the subjugation of humanity as well. Um, has you know, sort of shades of Trumpism uh, in it. And um, it's all in virtual reality and only in virtual reality. And this is the creepiest game I've ever played. And now I'm actually in it. So like, as you're looking around, those like, you're afraid to open that door for fear what might jump out behind you. I'm really starting to think I shouldn't be breathing this stuff. Agreed. Just keep moving. Maybe breathe less. You think I can get you to come over to the house once all this social distancing is behind us? Damn it. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Is that the crab thing there at the door? Yeah. And if you open that door, it's going for your head, man. Uh, size the mouth on that thing. Yeah. Enough to fit a human head. Oh, see? Oh, yeah. Now. Yeah, okay. All right. Crap. Oh, they're gross. This, this has got a very got, Stranger yeah. Things of the world feel to it, doesn't it? It, it? it does. I keep going back to the crab thing. I mean, that head is the size of a toilet bowl. Yeah. And that's the thing about 3D and in VR is that it is about that size. If you were, you can reach down and you can pick them up with your two hands and look at them. You can put them over your face if you wanted to once you killed one. But this is all uh, an immersive experience. And uh, oh, this this little thing off to the left here, that, that rope, that's not a rope. That's a that's like a tongue. It'll suck you up Ooh. into the sea. Okay, so this oh, is the is. creepy ethereal feel of everything. Look at it. Ooh. Ow! Oh, and here's my favorite part. Oh, is, is oh. are killed. Whatever they've eaten will come out of their little mouth thing, and often it's a skull. Oh, gross. Okay. <laughs> Have you had enough? So I, I, what am I watching here? I'm, am I watching you actually playing this? No, this is the trailer for the game. Oh, the trailer, okay. The thing, too, is that the geek community is really upset because we have been waiting 20 years almost for a sequel to this Half-Life 2. This is not actually the sequel. It happens between Episode 1 and Episode 2. You know, just don't tell George Lucas about that sort of thing. Mm. It is only available in VR. So all these nerds who had waited almost 20 years for the sequel, because it is one of the most powerful video games of all time, were furious that they'd have to run out and drop, you know, 500 to $1,500 on a VR headset to make it possible. If you want the, the bleeding edge stuff, you're going to have to fork up more, more dollars. It's always, it's always been that way. The thing is, is I forked out the big bucks. I dropped, I think it was $1,300, $1,400 on what is called a Valve Index 
a VR headset. Valve is the company behind the video game as well, and they had teamed up five years ago or so with HTC, the video, the, the handset maker, the smartphone handset maker, to build a VR headset. And this is sort of the version two where they went uh, went on it uh, on their own. And it is perhaps one of the most high-end VR headsets you can possibly buy. And I'm so glad I spent that money because it is an incredible experience. Also, on the topic of things to do while under quarantine, I pulled out the Thrustmaster steering wheel and plugged it all in to do VR racing again in the new VR seat. You know, I haven't been in your basement for a while, and it sounds like that you have acquired a whole lot more equipment than the last time I was there. Yep. I'm thinking that your basement now looks like some sort of mad scientist setup with all this gear that wouldn't be out of place in a board cube. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. Um, largely because, well, I, no, you know what? Board cube, I don't know if that's an accurate description because I put a lot of effort into trying to ensure that this technology doesn't take over the family room. So the, um, the sensors that have to go on the walls are embedded in the walls. So there's no cables hanging down or anything like that. And all of the cables attached to the VR flight seat that is also used for the racing car simulator, all the cables are, um, sleeved and they're sleeved not with the typical kind of sleeving that you get with vr geek stuff with with geek stuff but with this weird kind of fabric it's 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 not taut it's it's very loose and crumpled but it looks exactly like the kind of cable sleeving they used for the apollo astronauts when you saw them walking down the gangplank holding onto their briefcase with all the tubes coming out of it yes Nice detail. I wanted to get some insight into what it takes to make VR immersive, so we turned to a production house whose work has driven the sound of Legend of Zelda and Final Fantasy, among other games. Uh, Jonathan Roden is the CEO of Overworld XR, and he joins us now from just outside LA. Great to have you with us. Thanks. You've got Alan Cross, longtime radio music historian, understands the importance and value of sound. <laughs> How does that change for you when you're creating sound in 360 degrees? Well, you know, there's, um, it just depends on the experience. You know, I, I think with, you know, with 360 sound or what you would call, you know, ambisonics, spatial audio, spatial audio is more of like a generalized, you know, nomenclature over the whole, you know, a vast sort of assortment of different audio formats. You know, you're, you're not only looking at the ability to listen to music or listen to sound in a way that's in 360 surrounding you, but you're also looking at um, opening yourself up to the possibility of, of having a virtual space to create those sounds within. Does that make sense? So it's not just the playback that's important. It's the creative process that's also important. And, you know, with the VR projects that I've been involved in so far, some of them have been, uh, one of them was sort of a tightly NDA classified uh, project for a company called made fire that makes uh, comic books. So it was a comic book related project. And um, in that sense, you know, we're trying to expand on the genre of comics, you know, through VR and spatial audio. And then with another one that we did, it was a virtual reality um, film trilogy with a, a artist named Sutu eats flies. And in that project, you know, we're trying to immerse the the viewer in a way that's, half game, half film, you know? So I think um, this, this might be a little tangential to your actual question, 
when we're looking at expanding to 360, we're looking at, you know, what is the best way to um, immerse the listener? Is it going to be through interactivity or is it by trying to make a really realistic environment? Is it trying to create a totally surrealistic environment? But I think the bottom line is, is that when you engage more than just your visual senses, your ear is in your head and your shoulders and everything involved with that is what gives you a sense of space in general, you know, when you're listening to everyday life. So, you know, it just draws people in way more than traditional music making, I think. So are, are you mixing for headphones or for 5.1 or 6.2 or, or what? Basically, um, the format that I like to work in from the very beginning is called ambisonics. And ambisonics just means sound all around you. It's kind of a raw audio format where the, the sound is in a virtual spherical harmonics, you know, around your head and around the room simulated impulse responses and acoustics. And the, a good way to think of it is kind of doing like a raw capture of 3D, you know, photos, right? But we're doing with audio where we're capturing everything around you. And then from that raw format, I can mix and decode um, to any other surround format. So from one master file, we can create the sound that will now be available from 5.1, Atmos, Quad, stereo headphones um, and probably one of the more common use cases is uh, stereo binaural which is basically a a simulation of doing a binaural recording in 3d space so all, all of these terms might be brand new to your listeners so um, what a binaural recording is is where you have microphones essentially in the ears that are filtering the sound based on the shape of your head and your ears and your shoulders and that acoustic information is then you know given into the stereo recording so that you feel like you have 3d sound even with a simple pair of headphones um but yeah we do all surround formats you know for for music and for and for games and what i what i like to specialize in is is actually making the music part of the environment you know um as opposed to oh. just a soundtrack that's just blasting into your ears right like why why can't we just make it where music is actually part of the scene, right? You hear birds fly overhead. What if instead of birds, it was the sound of a flute? How many tracks are you dealing with? <laughs> Probably the biggest to date was a project with, you know, in one session was maybe about 95 tracks, um, which isn't unheard of, you know, when you're scoring and doing things like that. But what's unique about this is that every track is a multi-channel track. So, you know, normally when you produce audio, you're engaging with a mono uh, channel, which is just one channel of audio in a track, or a stereo channel, which is two, you know, left and right. Uh, but in this sense, we're actually dealing with, uh, you know, I usually deal with 16 channel tracks. So every track will have 16 channels. Wait, wait, of wait, audio. wait. Okay, so 95 <laughs> times 16 is what we're dealing with? That's one way to look at it. So like a track is just a, you know, a track of audio, right? So let's say I have yeah. a flute sound. Yeah. But Within that flute sound, there might be 16 channels of audio if I'm in third order ambisonics. And what that means is that that flute is not just a single piece of sound in one space. Um, that flute is now inhabiting a three dimensional space and the sound reflects that, you know, whether through acoustics or reflections, all those types of things. So, so it does take a lot of processing power. You have to pretty, yeah, it's, it's crazy how good the technology has gotten now. It's, you know, I got into this maybe four years ago. Um, you know, before that, I was mostly composing and playing as a saxophone artist. And, um, you know, with the dream of getting more involved in immersive tech, I'm a huge VR nerd and stuff. And, uh, you know, when I started getting into it, uh, the tools, even in the last six months, have, have expanded and changed so much. You, you hit on something that was really interesting to me, though. 
I was particularly interested in you referring to the sounds in a game um, being more of a soundtrack than sound effects. Because when I come around the corner in my favorite game, whatever it happens to be, and the music crescendos, I know the big bad guy is right there around the corner. Uh, when I watch the TV show Survivor, the music changes as you get a sense of the tone of this discussion between two people. I can imagine those are very similar sort of experiences for you as a composer. You are trying to create an ambient soundtrack. How do you go about that without sort of giving it all away? Like if I find out a little too early that the big bad boss is around the corner because the music tipped me off, well, then I'm not going to have the same kind of video game experience than if he handed my ass to me because I didn't have my gun loaded. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean you know, to me, one of the I've, I've been interested actually in adaptive, which you would call adaptive audio, you know, where it's adapting to your your place in the game right. or the moment in the story or the actions of the NPCs. You know, I, I've been really into that ever since uh, Metal Gear Solid 2, you know, with a. Uh, and in and, and that soundtrack, I remember reading in like PSN magazine back in the like late nineties, you know, or early two thousands, I think at this point that, um, you know, when they were creating the soundtrack for metal gear solid Two, that, that there was something unique about that in, in the sense that you had like these different audio loops. Now this doesn't have to do just with spatial audio. People have been doing this for a long time, obviously, you know, where you, you have different loops and different pieces of the musical composition that get triggered at different times, you know, in game audio. And, and, and also there's even plugins now that can add effects and filters and all kinds of things on those existing sounds and loops, depending on the context of the gaming experience. But see, when you start to um, take that stuff and make it spatial, it gets even more important because what if, uh, you know, like, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm big on foreshadowing in the game and, what if the sound came up that, you know, cued you like, oh, there might be danger around this corner. But what if the whole area had sounds and but kind of emanating off behind you to the left, you could hear like a sub bass frequency, you know, that like subconsciously draws your attention over there. Um, mm. and, and and I love that kind of stuff because I think music, you know, so many times people look at music as a static thing. You know, even if it's adaptive, it might still be static, but the more interactive the music can be um, and the sound design and the sound effects. And what if, well, let's say, what if all the sound effects are actually uh, have been generated from the music itself? You know, what if you took the drum sounds and turned those into the machine guns, you know, and things like that? Like the more interactive and immersive all of this can be, the better the experience in VR, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. Um, yeah, I still yeah. remember all the uh, the 8-bit sounds that we used to get back in the day kind of moved on beyond that <laughs> isn't chiptune a thing again though like aren't we sort of going retro oh, yeah yeah but you know with 95 channels and 16 channels embedded in each of those channels well that would be really <laughs> well well actually actually we're working on a couple of chiptune projects right now in ambisonics and and one of my see one of my dreams it's a kind of a dumb little pipe dream that probably wouldn't be that hard to do is to create a vr experience where you have a Game Boy, right, in VR, and you're listening to music, and you can actually load your Spotify playlist into the Game Boy, and then it will filter the sound and make it sound like it's coming out of a Game Boy speaker, right, which is not actually hard to do. Um, but then making that spatial, you know, so it sounds like you just got this Game Boy listening to all your favorite albums. I think that'd be pretty awesome. Um, but but see, like, you know, the, the spatial format, it's it's totally agnostic, you know, to genre and style. I mean, 
you know, you don't have to have a specific type of music, you know, to be able to listen this way. And it doesn't have to just be in VR. I mean, it opens up music to be its own immersive experience, you know, without ever having to even touch on a video game controller. Um, like we're doing a podcast right now that's going to come out hopefully later this month, maybe next month. That's a fantasy story. And the whole thing is done in spatial audio so that you can, you know, experience the the story and, you know, the emotions and the moments of the characters all in, in that audio I want to hear zero visuals. Again, what you can do is like, even if, if we're dealing with a 360, you know, array of virtual speakers, right. Which is kind of what we're doing when I'm mixing this way. I can simulate a recording that happens in your own two ears in the middle of that sphere. This is called binaural rendering, essentially. And what you get is you get a headphone mix that when you put on a pair of headphones, you can hear the sound move above you a few feet, mostly all the way behind you. It's not perfect yet, you know, but it's it does the trick. And if you know, if you're mixing for that format specifically, I think a podcast narrative is like the perfect thing. It's a serial yeah. So, you know, and we're, and we're drawing a lot of inspiration from game music, you know, 90s anime, things like that for that project. Well, actually, that ties into a, a question that one of the listeners is asking about right now. Zappo, his bane, is asking for your influences or your favorite classic game soundtrack. What, what, what drew you in? When I was a kid, it was definitely Final Fantasy VI. There's just something about the characters. I think there's a lot of, and I didn't know it at the time, but a lot of inspiration from, you know, classical opera. You know, there's, you know, light motifs and like recitatives and stuff, you know, in between scenes and characters have themes. Um, Metal Gear Solid was a big influence on me growing up. Um, Sonic the Hedgehog was probably earlier than all that. Toe Jam and Earl, Panic on Funkatron, you know, <laughs> like some of the some of the weirdest, most obscure stuff I was really into, you know, and then. Uh, but yeah, I, I think in terms of when I really got hardcore into gaming, it was definitely, I was like a JRPG fanatic, you know, absolutely. So Final Fantasy VII eventually took sway. And uh, I just bought the, uh, I just bought the limited edition vinyl records of Final Fantasy VII Remake. And oh, I was a little the guy that bought by them. the mixes, but I mean, it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm like the one guy who bought them. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. This has been great. Yeah, thanks. This was a lot of fun. Jonathan Roden is the CEO of Overworld XR. He joined us from just outside Los Angeles. I was so looking forward to getting your take on this until I found out that you hadn't even watched the season finale of Star Trek Picard. I did it today. I did it today. I saw it. So, okay, before we go any further, here's what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to um, throw to Michael Hainsworth of the future in the edit bay to tell people who haven't watched the season finale how far they have to skip so that we don't spoil it for them. Okay, you ready? Go. You have to skip four minutes to the 31 minute 42 second mark. Okay, we're clear now. Go. All right. The whole series was a slow burn. You didn't think that 
killing off Picard and then bringing him back as a synthetic life form was a bit of a cheat. Ah, yeah, I, I, a bit of a cheat. And then they they gave him the ability to be immortal, but chose not to. Right. And he shrugged it off. But he didn't want to be immortal. Well, listen, if I'm 94 years old, well, he didn't want to be immortal, but but even more so, he's 94 years old in, in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm 94 years old and I have a chance to be resurrected into a new body, I'm not going to choose a 94-year-old body. Exactly. I want to be a little bit more healthy, a little more spry. So that was that was one thing that went and like, really? Uh, and, and Picard just kind of like, oh, okay, I see what you did. Um, maybe that's in his programming. I don't know. The thing is, is he's not really alive anyway. Well, is he? I, I, I don't know. Okay, so then th- this this creates the conversation. Define life. And do can we define life as something but, that is inorganic? But that's the whole point of this the, the entire first series is what is life? How is life created? What is the purpose of life? Uh, what are the responsibilities of life? And when does life end? And who should end it? And how should it end? That's that's the whole underlying premise of the, the entire series. And I'm, I would imagine that we're going to come back and see that, examine that, that very existentialist philosophy in season two. But aren't we less attached to the character of Jean-Luc Picard now that we know he's not human and therefore we're less likely to be concerned about him dying, blah, blah, blah. You know, how many times did Data come back from life, from death sort of thing? Right. This I, I just fear that what we've done is by killing him off, we've ensured that we don't have an emotional connection to him like we used to. Well, this, you, you bring up a valid point. Do you remember, are you old enough to remember a Jerry and Sylvia Anderson uh, Super Marionation series called Captain Scarlet versus the Mysterians? No, the Super Marionation stuff was like dad stuff. Like that's an okay boomer moment right there. Captain Scarlet. All right, so so Captain Scarlet was this member of a, a space force that was looking to. All right, so so Captain Scarlet was this member of a, a space force that was looking to defend the Earth from the aliens, the Mysterions, and he was uh, a par- he was human, but for whatever reason, his he was his body was uh, infinitely regenerable. Does that make sense? He could he if he was injured, he would be he would recover. And you know that you know no matter how many times Captain Scarlet died or was 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 terribly injured. Again, we're talking about a puppet here. <laughs> he would he would come back to life. Captain Scarlet. I see what you're saying. You know, when whenever we go forward with Picard, we know that ah, well, if if he is in any way harmed, well, they'll just send him to the repair bay and have him fixed. Captain Scarlet. I do understand that. I, I, I really do. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if the fan base follows the series through with, uh, with this new premise. Welcome back, by the way, to the Star Trek fans who decided to skip through to this point in the podcast. We got a, uh, here, I'm going to punch this up. I'm going to jump in on uh, Sean, our ace director here. 
Um, on this topic, Zappo Hisbane has uh, pointed out uh, two things. One, that you're doing your best Stevie Wonder impression when you're uh, <laughs> uh, on the microphone. And two, that um, Star Trek tried to do the same thing with Data in Nemesis. So there is some precedent. The underlying premise of this entire Picard series, it does jump off from a storyline in Nemesis. I was looking at some um, some explanations of the Picard uh, Star Trek Picard series as it related to whatever timeline we wanted to follow on this in the Star Trek universe. And it all comes back to, to some things that have been set up in nemesis. And I think what I'm going to have to do, I think a lot of other people have to do it as well is go through um, some of the analysis that people are going to provide uh, comparing the two and, and stringing them, some things together. Because we pulled back the curtain on the recording studio so that people can see how the sausages are made, uh, to mix a bunch of metaphors, let's let's go back to what Zappo, uh, his bane, had pointed out, that you were doing your best Stevie Wonder impression. And I think it's important that people understand why radio people do what you've been doing. Yes. Okay. There are two different people on your screen. There is a TV person. There is a radio person. The TV person understands the importance of body language, gaze, facial expressions, and all that sort of stuff. The radio person doesn't give a shit about any of that sort of stuff. We're in a room with a piece of metal hanging in front of our face. And what we have to do is somehow just get the words out of our mouth. And it doesn't matter what we look like. It doesn't matter where my head is. It doesn't matter if I'm bobbing all over the place because you don't, it doesn't matter what I'm wearing. It It's... It's just two different habits of broadcasting. You're a TV guy, and you're very good at being a TV guy. I'm very lousy at being a TV person. Anytime I've ever done TV, I'm, I'm super self-conscious about everything that I'm doing because now, in addition to what's coming out of my mouth, I have to think about where my body is in time and space at any given time. I'm not very good at that. It's funny because you're not the only one who does that. When I um, when I worked at CFRB 1010, which is now News Talk 1010, uh, there was uh, a sports guy who did it as well. And so when you started doing it, it didn't surprise me at all. Uh, but I would say about one out of every five radio guys I've ever worked with do that. His name's Vic Router. Um, but the funny thing about Vic Router is that he would not use his hands when he was on camera, when he was on TV, they would be properly over the desk and he'd be doing the sports like this. But soon as he was on the radio, it was hand gestures upon hand gestures upon hand gestures. And you know who else really did a lot of that was your radio guy, Dick Smythe, Mr. Newsman. If you watched him do the news, he would do a lot of this the whole time. Yes. First of all, let me fill you in on what's happening and what isn't as we head into this long holiday weekend. First, today's rush hour will start about noon. And he used to explain that, saying that that is how he got the performance that he got. Yep. He he needed to, to actually move his body to make his voice sound the way it did to to enhance his delivery. You usually get that with uh, the 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 uh, the big eight. Uh, that was that that radio documentary. You remember that? Yes. Uh, they would show a lot of those guys acting that way. CKLW, the Motor City. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We want to say thank you to uh, Stephen Hulan. Thank you, Stephen. Who is the newest member of the World's Worst Intern Program. You know what makes it the World's Worst Intern Program, of course. Yes, you pay us 
to work on the program and you do no work whatsoever. But at the same time, we, um, we're we legitimate. You can put this on a resume. You could put it on your resume. Put it on your LinkedIn profile. As a matter of fact, Geeks and Beats podcast is an official company on LinkedIn. Uh, so we want to say thank you again, Stephen, for making that uh, possible. Uh, a lot of patrons make it possible on a regular basis for us to be able to do this show. So if you would like to be a member of the world's worst intern program, uh, as uh, we have several interns to thank, uh, 37 of them, as a matter of fact, Adrian Bashford, Alicia Sang, Antoinette Vanden Dickenberg, uh, Craig Aiken, Craig Glassford, uh, David S., Don Woodall, James Holmes, uh, Jason Winterbottom, Mike McDonald, uh, Roland Wood, among others. Thank you so much for helping uh, make it possible. If you don't like uh, Patreon, and you prefer, say, PayPal, we've got an option for that, too. So just go to Geeks and Beats, click the Support the Show link. You can even buy one of our miracle travel mugs of traveling, which keeps hot beverages hot and cold beverages cold using the power of science. Um, can we do a little bit of accounting here? Can you tell me how far we are from uh, recouping everything from Las Vegas? We are probably about 1500 bucks. That's just back of the napkin. I haven't done any of those numbers at play. All right. Well, it's, at least it's coming. Th- that number's coming down. It is. That is the encouraging sign. We want to say thank you again to everyone who supports the show on PayPal and Patreon. We're live streaming this particular episode, so we're going to say goodbye to you. And then we're going to take some questions from the audience uh, as the uh, evening has progressed. Thanks for joining us. And uh, go to geeksandbeats.com if you want to check out the live stream. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.